scripture this morning is from Exodus 33 and 34, um, some passages in both of those chapters. And uh, if you were with us last week, you know we're, we're moving through Exodus, and, um, and so this is right after the episode of the Golden Calf. So we're just picking up from there. Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, go leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see, shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed down to the ground and worshipped. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, I pray, let my Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He said, I hereby make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among you alive shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
Let's pray. Father, your word is like a seed. May this word be planted in our hearts. May it grow well. May it bear fruit. Bear the fruit of peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Slightly longer than usual scripture this morning, um, and for a good reason. Because the heart of the passage is this question that Moses grapples with. It begins with the Lord saying, I'm not going to go with you. And then it ends with the Lord saying, I will go with you. And how do we get from, I will not go with you, to I will go with you? We need, we need all the whole story in between to understand that. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about, obviously, that this morning. Um, but I, I've said this before, and it's not original with me, that when someone gets up to preach, they have to preach the Bible, of course. Um, so they have the Bible in one hand, but they also have the newspaper in the other hand. And you can't get up in public and read a scripture like, um, I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites before you go to the land flowing with milk and honey. You can't read a scripture like that right now with the war in Gaza and not mention the war and not have anything to say about it. It's not fair to you. Um, and it's not really fair to the scriptures either because there's not anything that's off limits. And so I am going to talk about that. I am going to mention that, and, and I'm going to reflect on that, and I think our scripture gives us a lot to reflect on. But it's also not the only thing I'm going to say. Um, so there's a lot to say this morning. My goodness. Um, so buckle up. Uh, I think it begins, I, I think the conflict that it begins with is something familiar to all of us. The Lord says, I'm going to give you everything you want. I'm going to give you the land. It's going to be a great land. I'm even going to give you protection. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to get rid of all your enemies. But I won't go with you. And in some ways, this sounds like a great deal. Like, I mean, we're getting what we want. What is the problem? Uh, we're getting the land. That's what we need to survive. And all of our enemies are going to be taken care of. And so what, what is our major concern here? Why are we upset about this? And, um, and I think sometimes we sort of, a, this is a sort of common way of approaching religion. You know, religion is about what we can get out of it. I, uh, I was chatting with a couple pastors this week, and one of the pastors was telling me about a switch in his prayer life that happened about 15 years ago. When, for a lot of his prayer life, he would go to prayer and trying to figure out what he could get out of it, what he could get from God. And then about 15 years ago, he realized that what he really wanted to do was spend time with God in prayer. And that is a way that we often approach religion. What can we get out of it? What are the benefits that we can get? And it might be eternal life. It might be blessing, it might be joy, it might be love, it might be some sort of tranquility, um, 
It might be a community, a church. It might be a, a religious community like that. Um, there are a lot of benefits. But if that's why we're in it, then I think we're missing the point. God doesn't want to just give us things. God is not a ladder we use to get to heaven and then we kick the ladder out of the way. God is the way. God is the truth. God is the life. God is the ultimate goal. God is the end. And so that's how this passage begins, is with this deep conflict of, of you know, that basically this challenge to the people to say, what do you really want out of this relationship? Do you just want the benefits? Or do you want me? Moses is not okay with this arrangement. Not even close is he okay. It would be interesting, and you know, we wonder if the people would be okay with it. But Moses is absolutely not okay with this arrangement. But let's be clear, the arrangement is, is, is God's idea. And the reason God comes up with this idea is because he's afraid he's going to just annihilate them. Because there's this thing called stiff neck. They use this phrase, stiff neck. What does that mean? This, this stiff neck, it, it, part of that is the same word we use for uh, Pharaoh's hardened heart. So it's like a hardness of neck, um, a stiffness of neck. And I think most of us over 35 probably understand this phenomenon. Um, but it's not just a physical phenomenon. Uh, it literally means um, unable to bow, unable to be humble before God. Um, very willing to bow to other things. We saw that with the golden calf. Idols, sure, will bow all day. But when it comes to bowing to God, our necks have a hard time getting down there. That's what it means to be stiff-necked. And what God understands is that he is he, he's God. He's, he's not just a regular fellow. He's not a nice guy who can kind of like overlook some things. This is God we're talking about. And so if we're not willing to worship God, there will be trouble. And again, we talked about this last week. It's, there's not trouble because God has some sort of like impossible ideal or something like that. It's because he wants a relationship with us. And if we keep going off and having relationships with other things, with idols and things like that, then there's going to be a breach. A breach between us and God. And so it's God who comes up with this arrangement. He says, I'll just give you guys what you want, and then I'll just back off. And then we'll be fine. It, you know, it's sort of like a, um, you know, one of the most painful things a kid can go through is when their parents are divorced. And, and a lot of times when there's a situation of, um, they're, they're having a custody conversation with the kid, and the kid is sitting there, and the parents are describing this arrangement. You know, it's like, oh, we're, you know, it's, it's going to be great. We're going to do weekends with dad, and then during the week with mom, and this holiday, and that holiday. And to the parents, this arrangement seems to make sense. But all the kid hears is, we're not going to be together. That's not okay. And that's sort of what we're looking at in the beginning of this passage, is, is God's coming up with this arrangement that... Like, this is the only way we're going to get along here, guys. And Moses is the one saying, this is not okay. This is not okay. So what does Moses do? Moses intercedes. Moses has this conversation with God. Um, Moses 
is trying to uh, make peace, which again is something that a lot of kids do when their parents are having a lot of conflict. Um, Moses intercedes, and the way Moses intercedes is, is very interesting. What he says is, okay, fine, we could go into the land, we could do all these things, we could take all these benefits, and that would be fine, but how will we know what to do? How will we know which way to go? How will we know how to do anything if you're not with us? I mean, Moses says, you might like me, you might find, I might find favor in your sight, is how he says it. Uh, you might think I'm great, but if we're not together, how will I know if you still like me? How will I know you still love me? How will I know we're still together? It's a pretty good argument. There's one point, a really interesting point in the passage, where, where God does respond, and he says, um, he says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, and, but Moses doesn't accept it, because God's only talking about Moses. And Moses insists on God's presence for the whole entire people, not Moses alone. And so finally, God says, okay, fine, I will go with you. And then right at the point where God says, I will go with you, uh, Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see it. I want to see you. He just, Moses just can't get enough of God. He just wants all of God. And then God sort of turns the tables on him a little bit. He says, sure, I'll show you my goodness. He doesn't say glory. He says goodness. He says, I'm going to show you my goodness. Um, if I, I, I'm terrible at titling, giving titles to sermons, and you can tell because I'm, I'm giving you the title in the middle of the sermon. Um, and, but, but the title I thought of, of this one is All the Glory We Cannot See. Because, because what God recognizes in the request that Moses gives to see God is that there's some glory of God that Moses can't see. You're not going to be able to see it. This is really good news. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it is. Because if we, if we can't see all of God's glory, it means there's a part of God that is absolutely beyond us. And this is one of the, um, the, greatest, the greatest contributions to Jewish and Christian faith, is that we have a God who is completely other than his creation. And that might sound like bad news if we want a God who's near and close to us, which is precisely what Moses wants. But we're going to see later how that's also deeply good news. To have a God who says, I can show you some of me, but I'm not going to be able to show you all of me. And again, we'll, we'll come back to that. But I, I do want to say this other part. So, so God says, I am going to reveal something to you, but you want to see me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to reveal you by telling you who I am. And he tells him who I am, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, and then, he, and then he talks about himself. And he says two things about himself. He says he's faithful and merciful to the thousandth generation, and then he said he judges to like the third or fourth generation. It's interesting. We, have, we could probably have a few responses to that. One response would be like, well, I don't, want a, I don't want a judgmental God. Like, I want God to just be merciful and abounding in mercy. Um, but, you know, if we look at it mathematically, the, the difference between four generations and a thousand is significant. I mean, I, again, I don't, think, I don't think it's meant to be a math problem. But, 
That's a significant difference for generations, thousand generations. The other thing to keep in mind is, is if you're somebody who is under someone else's thumb, if you're someone who's persecuted, if you're someone who's in trouble, then the person who is persecuting you, you want some level of judgment. Some level of judgment is important. You don't want a God who just lets everybody off the hook. You want a God who holds people accountable. And we all know, we all know that things get passed on, that there are cycles of violence. We all know that decisions that parents make affect the children, and the decisions that children make when they're adults affect their children, and so on. We all know this part. So for God to say, judging to the fourth generation, well, that's just common knowledge. What's news is being merciful to a thousand generations, abounding in love and faithfulness. So this is what God reveals to Moses. And then Moses prays and he says, we confess our sin, please be with us, please go with us. And God decides to go with them and then he says at the very end, you're gonna see things you've never imagined before. Marvels you've never dreamed of. All right. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with global events? What does that have to do with anything? The first thing this makes me think of is often the way we think about conflict. And this could be conflict overseas, and it could be conflict in our own lives, or it could be internal conflict that we all face. We usually figure there's two options. The first option is a sort of fragile piece. Like, a, like a, a piece that barely holds together. A piece that's hard fought, hard won, and then protected at all costs. Sometimes relationships can be like this. Where you're just holding it together and you've got a lot of lines you cannot cross in this relationship. And if you cross them, there is trouble. Sometimes it's just internally in, in all of us. We're one person one day of the week, we're another person another day of the week, and we're just trying to hold those people together. Fragile peace. The other option is battle. Just doing battle and winning. It's just going, going at it. The other option is having conflict and saying, I'm gonna win this conflict. Might be a conflict with somebody else, maybe a conflict with someone at work, maybe a conflict with someone in your family, whatever it is, you go into it thinking, I'm going to win at all costs. This is one way to also frame the conflict in the Middle East. I think, I think one of, the, one of the, the worst things of, about our relationship to that conflict is that everybody says it's complicated. And I've said this forever. I, I thought, when we went to Israel in June, I thought, I'm going to learn about this thing. And then I tried learning about it, and I was like, this is way too complicated. I don't understand any of this. And then I came back, and I kept reading, and I was like, this still feels too complicated. And then it hit me. Oh, wow. It's in a lot of people's best interests for us to just think it's far too complicated to talk about. We have to talk about it. Of course it's complicated. 
Every conflict is complicated. If you've ever been, if you've ever loved a person and, and had conflict with that person you love, guess what? That is complicated. Of course conflict is complicated, but that doesn't mean we turn away from it. And so there's two ways I think we can think about the conflict in the Middle East. One is a fragile peace. A fragile peace that lots of people from Norwegians to Jimmy Carter to you name it have been trying to forge and hammer out over time, drawing boundaries, drawing lines, saying don't do this, do this, and then, and then a, a very, very large military apparatus to protect that peace. A very fragile peace. And then the other option is just conflict. Maybe we can just eradicate the other person. Maybe that'll work. I think this is exactly the tension that is being faced here in Exodus. How do we have peace with God? Will it be a fragile peace? We're sort of walking on eggshells. We don't know if God's mad at us. Or do we just separate? What should it be? And Moses forges out something completely other than those two options. And in fact, it's not Moses. It's God. And what is that peace? It's not an arrangement. It's not a... It's not a... Um, uh, it's not a you know, a court-arranged court kind of living situation or something like that. It is something else. There's a connection here I mentioned earlier about not being able to see all of God. The reason it's important that we don't see all of God is because it means that God is able to act in ways that we could never imagine. It means God has freedom to make peace in ways that we would never be able to do ourselves. What we have seen is conflict. What we know is war. We've seen the, the, the bombing, and we've seen it over and over again. And the longer you live, it just feels like it's repeating itself. There's nothing new there to conflict. There's nothing new to violence. There's nothing new to killing and displacement, whether that's the Middle East, or it's Latin America, or you name it. We've seen hatred, and we've seen rage. We've seen all of it. God shows us what we have not seen. God shows us the possibility of peace in a land soaked with the blood of innocent people. God shows us the possibility of reconciliation and healing, not just a ceasefire. God shows us the possibility that enemies could become brothers and swords could be turned into plowshares. That is the vision that the scriptures hold out for peace. It's not a flimsy peace. It's not a peace that barely holds together. It's the shocking, dramatic piece of Isaiah where the child plays near the home of the snake, where the lion lays with the lamb, where God is born in a manger in the middle of empire, where he flees to Egypt and then returns to bring peace to the whole world. That is the kind of peace we can hope for. 
Do we see it? No, we don't. And we can't see it right now. But we can hope in the one who can bring it. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of peace that is possible for each of us. And that may be peace in your relationships. That may be peace in your own selves. And it may be a peace that you're longing for, and you've tried, you've tried, you've talked to the therapist, you've taken the pills, you've read the books, you've done it all, and it's still not holding together. You're not going to see it any other way than the Lord. Let's not make a false peace. Let's not make a one-sided peace. And let's not go to battle against our enemies, especially if the enemy is ourself. When Moses prays, he asks for forgiveness, and the Lord grants it. And the Lord goes with them into the promised land. When Jesus was heading into Jerusalem, right before he was going to be crucified, he wept in front of them and he said, Oh, if only you knew the things that made for peace. Christ knew the things that made for peace. His death on the cross and forgiveness. This is the peace that comes from God. A peace from a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Amen. Lord, we do want to see you, and we want to be with you. And we thank you that we know you as a God who has made a way to be with us, a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in love. Draw us near to you, Lord, as we draw near to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.